Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. When the music fades and all has slipped away and I simply call Longing just to be something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship It's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express. How much you desire Though I'm weak and poor All I have is yours Every single breath I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have well, folks, this is part three of a multi-part series on how to love one another. We've long recognized that Jesus told us to love one another. In fact, he said there were two great commandments. The, the first one was love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and the other was to love your neighbor as yourself. And then later he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So this series of, of sermons is aimed at giving us detailed ideas on just how do we love others. It's a series of sermons also that you can take to help other people understand what Christianity teaches. Now, the first week we discussed the use of prayer as a way to love one another. We promised to pray for one another as Christians. And we should take the church directory and pray for each person in the directory. And we should make a list also of a dozen people who, as far as we know, are not followers of Jesus Christ. And we even make a list of our enemies, since Jesus told us to pray for our enemies as well as our friends. And so we begin to develop love, unselfish, agape love, for each person we've begun praying for. We can't help it. When we pray for other people, we begin to love them. And this is one way we learn to love other people as Jesus commands, through our prayers for them. And last week, we spoke of the need 
for our personal presence to go forth and be with people. For our very presence is the beginning of friendship and thus of love for one another. We spoke of the fact that our presence includes the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we have a much greater effect upon people than we often realize. We're missed when we're not around. For the Holy Spirit within us misses the Holy Spirit that's in our friends, and our friends' Holy Spirit misses us. We love each other through our very presence. And so today I plan to speak of loving one another through a third way, learning to love one another through our gifts, which, as we realize, is a major part of becoming generous and turning away from our intense love of ourselves to being able to love one another. In our reading today, in the Isaiah reading, and in Psalm 80, which was the basis for our call to worship, and in our Matthew reading, there's a lot of talk about vineyards, unproductive vineyards. Now, I don't know if you've ever planted a vineyard, but I have. And it's a lot of work. Let me tell you how much work it is to plant a vineyard. A couple of years after we moved to our former home in Lowell, Ohio, it was beside the Muskingum River, this was about 20 years ago, with the help of my father and my children and Sandra, I planted both an orchard and a vineyard. It wasn't a huge vineyard, not with thousands of vines. No, we had about 50 grape vines. They were seedless varieties, both red and blue grapes. Now, to plant a vineyard, you're going to need some vine cuttings that have been grown carefully for a year or two and sprouted good roots. I got mine from a place called Foster Nursery. It's up near Buffalo, New York. You've got to, plant, you've got to dig out a row. It's got to be planted. The weeds have to be removed. Now, these days, we usually do that by spraying a herbicide on a strip a couple of feet wide after you plow it. And, but in the old days, it meant a lot of work with the hoe. A lot of work with the hoe. Because just putting 50 vines down means about 200 yards worth of, of strip. Posts, you've got to dig some posts down, dig holes and put some posts at the end of the strip, and then run two or three ropes or wires strung tightly between the posts. And the vines are gently tied to the wire so they'll grow up and out the wire. You've got to tie every single vine up. We've learned today that you want to train the vines up through this three-inch light-duty plastic spiral that protects them from stray rabbits who might want to nibble at their tender shoots, and it also keeps the weed killer off of them, and it ensures that the vines grow up and they don't spread on the ground. Then you can step back and rest for a little while. As always, you've got to keep, keep away the rabbits and the deer, and of course the best cure for rabbits causing damage is to eat more rabbit stew, and the best cure for deer damage is to eat more venison. You know this. You've had gardens. The vines, you've you got to water the vines regularly the first year, but usually they'll have put down deep roots by the following summer. And they don't need fertilizer, because fertilizer will encourage the vines to put more energy into growing long, and this will make them weaker when they do begin to bear fruit the second year. But you might want to pinch off some flowers in May if the vine appears wine. So you've got to walk down through there and you've got to look at every vine. 
Now, every year in late October, the vines have to be pruned. If you don't prune them, it's not going to work out well. You've got to cut them way, way back. A typical vine needs to lose nine-tenths of its vine every fall because too much vine means too many leaves blocking the air and the sunlight, and the grapes won't ripen well before the mold and the mildew take over. You only leave about four to six inches of horizontal vine for the next spring. We used to have a lot of vine cuttings that were made. They were just great for making wreaths. In the late winter, the vines need to be sprayed with a little bit of diluted vegetable or olive oil, about a tablespoon to a gallon of water. And this oil coats over the insect egg cases that were laid the previous fall and suffocates the bugs. So you're out here in the end of February on that first day when the temperature gets up in the 50s and you're spraying. The second year, though, the vines probably don't need to be watered or fertilizer, but the grass and the weeds do need to be kept down around them. And then it's summertime, and in the summer you have to walk down through there every couple days and look for molding fruit and mildewed leaves, and you've got to remove them and burn them every few days. And if you stay on top of this, if you stay on top of this, then you can go out in late August and you can snip off the bunches of fruit and eat them raw, or you can press out the grape juice to can it immediately, or you can set it aside to become wine. And on about the third year, with our 50 vines, we harvested about 300 to 400 pounds of grapes. Now, in our situation, the deer and the other critters were more interested in the orchard. That was on the upper woodsy side of the house. The vineyard was beside the highway on the lower side of the house, so the deer didn't mess with the grapes much. But critters can be a problem. They've always been a problem around vineyards. In ancient Israel, people used to build walls or plant thick hedges around vineyards to keep out the critters. Today, of course, we use eight-foot-tall deer fences. So you can see that the vineyard was a heavy investment of labor and money. But there were great rewards when you did it correctly. Assuming no widespread disease, the vines will live for 50 to 100 years, even longer, and they'll produce well almost every year. Once you do that upfront investment, and then you stay on top of it every summer and winter, you will have a lot, a lot of fruit coming back. And the whole idea of a vineyard is to bear fruit. God said he wanted his people of Israel to be like a vineyard that bore fruit good fruit. And he was angry when Israel didn't bear good fruit, but instead bore wild grapes, which were tiny, very sour grapes. In other words, God wanted people, he wanted his people in his vineyard to do good things. He wanted people who were large in character and treated each other well, who bore good fruit. But he got a bunch of sour people with tiny souls. Well, Jesus also used the parable of the vineyard. In it, he compared Israel to a vineyard with tenant farmers. Now, as you know, when you have tenant farmers, usually that means it's sharecropping. The owner gets a share of the crop. When it comes time for the harvest, God, the owner, sends servants out to collect the fruit. And the tenants killed the servants, God's prophets. And finally, God, the owner, sent his son Jesus but the tenants decided to do the very same thing to the Son of God, the owner's son. 
And so Jesus asks the listening Pharisees, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to those tenants? And they said, well, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of crops at the, at the harvest time. And Jesus continued, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. People who will share. It's clear that the tenants don't want to give up any of the fruit to the owner. They want to selfishly, selfishly hold on to the fruit for themselves. And so the verdict of Jesus' listeners was that God, the owner, would give the vineyard to another set of people who were less greedy. We Christians are the second set of tenants. But we might get treated the very same way. God and Christ clearly are expecting fruit from us. God expects a return from us. So what is this fruit that God wants? Well, there's several possibilities. You know, if an alien came to our planet and looked at the ordinary people of the world around us, that complete stranger would probably conclude that we had been commanded by our God to make money, to buy things and build things. Without any knowledge of our Bible, it appears that most people think that we're commanded to accumulate wealth in the form of money and goods. We're to build large homes. We're to travel around the world. We're to increase our store of electronics and be entertained in many different ways. This is what a stranger would look at our society and say, well, I guess that's their religion. Another large set of people apparently believe, based upon the way they spend their time, that they've been commanded to train their children to be experts in various sports. And a third set of people believe that God has commanded them to win elections and pass laws, ordering people around, that this is the fruit that God wants. And so many of the people in this world are sour and bitter, handing out fruit that makes other people sick. They don't share good fruit with God, and they don't share good fruit with other people. They love only themselves and sometimes their families but they don't love the people in the world around them as God and Christ commanded. But Jesus tells, he did tell us multiple times that we're to love one another. Yet looking around at the world today and looking back through history, loving each other is a very rare thing. Loving each other is so rare that we even have a special word for people who choose to ignore the fruit that the world puts in front of us and instead choose to love other people. And we call these few rare people, these good vines that love other people, by this word, saints. You may have encountered a handful of people you think of as saints. Think about our popular image of saints. They're kind, they're gentle, they look toward the good of others, they're generous with their time and with their money, they're not greedy and selfish, and their love extends far beyond their own families to many people near them and even to strangers. They give away, they give away what they have, and we've each met a couple of them in our lives. Each one of us different people, but we have met saints in our lives, haven't we? That's what I'm going to focus on today is the giving away, loving each other through our gifts, 
bearing fruit for the kingdom of God through our gifts. Jesus tells us multiple times to love one another. And one way to love other people is through gifts. After all, what do you do for your children and your grandchildren on their birthdays? And at Christmas, you give them gifts. Well, now that she's retired, Sandra has been going through our boxes and totes that we've moved from place to place over the years, and she's been consolidating, and she's been getting rid of about three-quarters of what she goes through. The other day, she found, that she found in one of the totes where she had written in a journal about our first Christmas in the ministry back in 2010. We had two wonderful church services on Christmas Eve, and then we retired to the parsonage at Belmont for some family time. And there were large stacks of presents for me and for each of the three children at home. But there was only one present for Sandra. It was from Andrew, our youngest, who was 11 years old at the time. He pointed out that this meant he loved his mother more than everyone else did. <laughs> of course, they did not know that I'd taken a bunch of presents for her from myself and the older children to my parents' home where we met the next day to open those presents. Gifts, you see, are one way that we express love for one another. Woe be to the young man who fails to give a gift to his girlfriend on Valentine's Day. Woe be to the man who does not give a gift to his wife on their anniversary or her birthday. We even give gifts when someone retires or moves away. For giving gifts is one way we show others that we love them. But you know, a gift doesn't need to be wrapped in fancy wrapping paper in a box with a bow. A gift for another person can be very simple but meaningful. One evening, we were struggling financially with four children at home. Our business was having difficulty getting started up, and then we heard something at the front door. Now, since we were living in an Atlanta suburb, that's always a cause for concern. You don't want to hear things in your yard at night. Well, I opened the door, and I caught a couple of church friends trying to thread an envelope in our front door grill work. The envelope contained $300. And that gift was very much appreciated and needed. And it really helped us to understand that the people of that church really did love us. We weren't the pastors. We were barely involved. We were just doing our part by working once a month in the nursery and, I, me, and learning to talk. And I was singing in the choir. But that was all we were doing. We weren't leading ministries or anything. But that gift showed us that those people really loved us. We give gifts in several ways. We give gifts of things like phones and books and tools. We give gifts of service and advice like what's the best way to preserve strawberries or bake a cake or fix a squeaky door hinge. And there's the obvious gift of money that we give to friends or relatives or the church organization. And while many people like to go back to the Old Testament idea of giving 10%, one-tenth of our income to the church, Paul does expressly tell his new Christians at Corinth, now about the collection for the Lord's people, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, I get the, no collections will have to be made. See, Paul planned to collect a group of money to take to Jerusalem to help the apostles survive a famine. It wasn't money for him, it was money for the 
apostles who were still behind in Jerusalem. The realities of our modern life are different from Old Testament days. Yet the idea of loving each other in the church is still with us. So giving weekly to the church is critical. Now just how much you give will depend upon your situation. In fact, I've seen that as people learn more and more about the church and what the church does, most people follow a certain progression in gifts. And yes, you've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Amount. <laughs> to begin with, new people often look at giving to the church like paying for a ticket to a movie or a play. It's a transaction for them. It's a, it's a fee paid for service. Some give $5 a week. A family might give $20 a week. And they only give when they're here. But over time, these visitors will become regular attenders and they begin to make up for the weeks that they've missed. And then the concept of the tithe. 10% of our income begins to make it way, its way into everybody's thought. And we begin to love the church and the people of the church, so we increase our giving. It's no longer a fee paid for service. It's a series of gifts. Gifts, you see, are a result of love, not the result of a law. How deeply do you love this church and the people in it? How deeply do you love the mission of the church? And so we begin to give more as our income increases. We may start at 2, 3, 4% of our, if our debts are high. But gradually we increase the percentage of giving year after year until we reach 10%. Yet there's people I know who have decided they'll give even more than 10%. They give 10% weekly and additional gifts when the church has a special request like money for a new uh, furnace. I've known people who gave 30% regularly for they had come to understand that the church is one of God's preferred ways of loving people. Rick Warren and his wife reversed tithe when The Purpose Driven Life was a million copy bestseller, giving 10% and giving 90, uh, they gave they gave 90%. They only kept 10%. Reverse tithing. Simply because they could. And they loved the people in the church. Then there's the additional personal giving. Like the family in Georgia who gave us $300. They didn't just happen to have that money. They regularly gave to the church, yes, but they also set aside a pot of money for generous acts to others, holding a fund from which they were ready to show their love for others through financial gifts to people from time to time. For you see, loving others through gifts is also known as being generous. And according to the teachings of the New Testament, we're not to give because a law demands 10% like a tax from the government. No, we're to give to the church and to others because that's one way we love another. I know that many, indeed most of you, are very generous people. You've picked up my breakfast or lunch or dinner. You've contributed to gifts for me on occasion. And you know, last Sunday, as word spread of our need for a new furnace, the church received gifts of almost $2,500 in addition to our usual weekly collections. Thank you very much. But now I'm going to challenge each of you. If you have income, set aside a certain portion of that each week to give to the church and another certain portion each week to develop your own love through generosity pot of money. 
from which you help those who are in need. As you're probably aware, the church does have a fund expressly to help those in need. Sometimes it's a large fund, and sometimes, particularly during and since COVID, that fund has dwindled down and could use some more donations. But of the money which you are to give to the church, you know, some of that money, it goes to pay for salaries and for utilities and maintenance for the church and the parsonage. It goes to buy our supplies like paper for the bulletins and the children's Sunday school supplies and software and copyrights. It goes for subscriptions to our accounting software, our rights to project music and broadcast the music on Facebook and to make improvements to the building like our new furnace. And if you're listening on the radio or on Facebook, these are also supplied to you through the gifts of people just like you. For as a group, we love not only those people who worship with us in person, but those of you who are worshiping with us on Facebook and those of you who tune in to worship on the radio or to read the newsletter or to listen to the weekly podcasts, perhaps you might also consider giving to the church. And one of the best ways to give is to go to the website. At Cedar Grove, that website's cedargroveunitedmethodist.org. And there, if you look at the top of the page, you'll find the word give, G-I-V-E. Click on that and you can give a gift or set up regular giving to Cedar Grove. Or you can mail your check in it to 168 Old Turnpike Road in Parkersburg, 26104. And if you'd like to consider leaving a sum to the church after you transfer to the Church of Heaven, let me know. I can put you in touch with people who can set that up to make that happen. But you know, money isn't the only way we give gifts to love each other. Susan Lemon recently gave Cedar Grove that beautiful table for a morning coffee service. And this year, Mary McCullough has begun stopping by the church every week to prepare the bulletin, giving of her time. And if you look around the church, you'll see things happen. And you know, it isn't always obvious where they come from. Candy and coffee is waiting in the entranceway, food shows up at community meals, trash gets emptied. A few weeks ago when the roof at Cedar Grove had a problem, this bucket truck just magically appeared to help the trustees work on the roof. It was donated the time of that truck. New collections of music have appeared due to the generosity of a couple of members. But you say that is giving to the church. Yes, it is. But that giving happens because people love the other people in this church and the ministries of the church. The outreach ministries, like the radio ministry, happen because the people of the church love other people outside the church and want those people to experience the love of Jesus just as they have. We'd like to expand those outreach ministries and we're just waiting on the gifts and the ideas to make it happen. Friends, our churches have the funds to stay alive. We can keep the building going, like a church I once knew that kept the building going because they promised to keep the building going. And they paid a part-time pastor for the five people who gathered every Sunday and huddled around a kerosene heater on the cold days of winter. It was surviving. That church was surviving, barely. But you see, it's love for others that brings the gifts into the church, which pay for the heating and the air conditioning, 
the teaching of the children, the Sunday school and the midweek classes, all the outreach programs of the church from the radio ministries to Facebook Live to advertising. If the core of a church wanted to, they could be stingy and draw back from the world. They could keep everything just like those tenants do. And some, church, some churches have chosen to do that, like those vineyard tenants that killed the servants of the owner who came to collect the fruit of the vineyard. Those churches are in decline, for the owner of the vineyard is slowly evicting them for their stinginess and their lack of love for others. But here at Cedar Grove, we choose to love people we have never met. And one way we do that is through prayer. Another way we do it is through our presence when we go out and we, we talk to people as people instead of just servants. Through our gifts to the church and to other people. We offer fruit, good fruit, to both our Heavenly Father and to the people around us. Would you look at that bunch of grapes? That's what happens when people really begin to love others. Even people who are far off, we love. Jesus said, love one another. This church does, but continue to love one another with your prayers. Love one another with your presence. And love one another with your gifts. And next week, we'll talk about how to love one another through service. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Bowling would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77 just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.